Romans chapter 11, starting with verse 1 in our verse-by-verse study. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. We all feel that way sometimes, don't we? But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were just blinded. Just as it, writ- as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bow down their back always. Well, if you've been with us, uh, you've got to go back a ways. You might have uh, forgotten a little bit where we left off in the 10th chapter. The nation of Israel is dealt with by the Apostle Paul quite extensively in chapters 9 and chapters 10 and chapters 11. Uh, Paul understanding that uh, Israel, his nation, uh, his blood, his brothers and sisters, um, he's not Paul not being a Gentile, though he certainly understood the Gentile world, grew up in a Gentile city, but also grew up very Hebrew in his, in his upbringing, trained at the feet of Gamaliel uh, when he was older to go down to Jerusalem. And so Paul understands that the vast majority of Israel, if you were asking the Gentile world, well, if Jesus is really the Messiah, why don't your people believe in him? Right? That's essentially what Paul dealt with periodically, well, more than periodically, on a regular basis, that people might would say, well, let me get this straight. Jesus is Jewish. He's born in Bethlehem, city of David. He himself spent his entire life as an adult in the land of Israel, and your Jewish brothers killed him? Then is he really? No wonder that, you know, even Gentiles say, well, no wonder the Jews don't believe in him. And so Paul also is left explaining to Gentile believers, as well as Jewish believers who have come to faith and still are trying to rectify what is going on. Why don't, if Jesus really is the Son of God, if he's really the direct line of David, if he really is going to take David's throne one day, and someday he will, amen, Jesus really will take David's throne. If all this is going to take place, then why is Israel not following their king? Even Pilate, Pilate was more convinced, in a sense, that you guys, why would you crucify this man? He, he's, he's innocent. My wife had a really bad dream about him. Uh, I can't seem to find anything wrong with him. And just, you know, when Pilate finally had enough, he didn't want to lose, he didn't want to 
lose his position, so he washed his hands of it, but he ends up putting over the top of Jesus, king of the Jews. Recognizing, says, as far as I'm concerned, he is your king, even though you rejected him. And Pilate, not really knowing what Jesus is all about, remember he even asked Jesus, where do you come from? And yet Jesus really was the king of the Jews, is the king of the Jews. And yet Israel, the majority of Jews, in Paul's day and still today, rejected the Messiah. Jesus himself wept over Jerusalem, how I long to gather you. So the majority of Israel, Paul's dealing with this and saying, hey, I know, I know, I know. I know that most of you observe and say, well, if he really was the Messiah, why, why did his own people reject him? And Paul makes the case here, in some respects, the majority has almost always been wrong as it relates to God. Does that make sense? What did Jesus say about the way to uh, destruction is broad, but narrow life is a very, the way to heaven is a very narrow way so looking for majority approval is really never a good way to judge anything about whatever God has done. It's always been a small remnant. We'll look at that as well. Noah certainly wasn't in a big majority in his day either. And yet the only way of salvation was rejected. Anyone could have got on the boat with Noah, but most people said, I'm not buying it. I don't believe I need to get on that boat to survive some storm I've never heard of or ever seen. The world had never seen rain, even though uh, springs came up from the deep and everything else. But if you're taking notes tonight, I've titled our time in God's Word together, The Preservation of Israel. The Preservation of Israel. God preserves. Uh, after, my, um, after mine and my wife's uh, wedding back in 1994, uh, you know, my wife's wedding gown, we got it preserved. It's still in this box. It sits up. Anyone else have those things where they got it preserved? It's in a big, uh, you know, rectangular box there, and and there it's never been opened. Uh, I don't know. At some point in time, it'd be kind of cool to open it up and look at it. But it's preserved. It's kept, so it wouldn't it wouldn't uh, be damaged. It couldn't uh, you know fade away or change color or all these different things. But God with with Israel, He's always preserved a certain portion of his people through every generation. Taking notes, we'll look at three things tonight. Remembered, reserved, and resisted. Remembered, reserved, and resisted. Paul starts out in verse 1, I say then, he asked the question, because I'm sure he's received it a lot, he asked the question, has God cast away his people? Is he, is he so angry with Israel? Is he so fed up with Israel? Is Israel so hard-hearted uh, to the point that he's cast them away? And what's his answer? Certainly not. Never. No, this is an unequivocal no. God has not in any way removed Israel from his plan from his eternal plan, from the plan that he, going all the way back to Abraham, I'll make a great nation of you, the stars of the heaven, the sands of the sea. God cannot and he will not deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself what he has promised. 
he will deliver. Israel as a nation will be in God's plan all the way until he brings all the saints together. The promised Abraham will be, it has been, and is being fulfilled even today, and yet there's still more fulfillment to come. That all makes sense? Israel's been in God's hand in the past, present, still to the future. Israel, all the promises made to Abraham will still come to fruition. And uh, in the book of Daniel, first, uh, chapter 9, verse 3 and 4, it says this, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and those who keep His commandments. The covenant is kept by God. He keeps His covenant, and then notice what Daniel said right after that, and mercy. Nehemiah says the same thing in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32. says, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the troubles seem small before you that has come up upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. Now Daniel knew it, Nehemiah knew it, that if Israel had any hope, it was because God made a covenant and God was merciful. Did you notice both prophets pray, your covenant, your mercy, your covenant, your mercy. Now we've talked about this recently in our book of Exodus uh, study. You and I uh, are very unwise to ever ask God for fairness, right? And I'll remind it again and again because it's good for us to be reminded we always want to ask for mercy. We always want to remember that the covenant of our salvation is in the blood of Jesus. Remember that he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Thank God for the new covenant. But the covenant keeper for Israel, God the Father, the covenant keeper in salvation, the blood of Jesus, and even their covenant ultimately goes through Christ. The covenant is fulfilled. Everything all the law of the prophets is fulfilled in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. But everything else was a foreshadow pointing to the necessity. The spotless lamb, the blood had to be shed, all of these things point to the need for Jesus. But the covenant, whether it's the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament, and Paul speaks so much here in this chapter of grace, grace, it's all of grace, because grace and mercy, those flow downward from God to us. There's nothing, you and I can't produce grace, and we can't produce mercy. We can only receive grace and receive mercy. Make sense? It's nothing that we can do, and Paul talks about that related to uh, individuals, but also his people. He, he's saying, hey, look, I know Israel doesn't deserve to survive, but God but God will not cast his people away. He hasn't cast them away. Now he goes on in verse 2, he says, God has not cast his people away whom he foreknew. And we know that 
God knows everything. You know, people will say, well, if God foreknew, did, uh, did they choose him? Did, God, uh, did they choose God or did God choose them? Yes. God absolutely chooses divinely before time, before space, and yet at the same time, he gives individuals free will. Paul himself, an example of that. He, he totally chose Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul was absolutely not, Paul did not have a sign above him that says, please uh, talk to me today, strike me down with blindness so I will follow you. He was there to kill Christians, and Jesus said, I'm going after Paul today. Aren't you glad that God went after you? But even still, Paul had to still submit and say yes. Even when he got to Ananias, he still had to make a decision, yes. But the Lord foreknew he was going to call Paul long before he ever called Paul, before Paul ever knew God was going to call him. And Paul thought he was actually serving God when he was actually working against God. And Israel, as a nation, much like Paul's individual life, continually acknowledging that, hey, yeah, yeah, God exists. Jesus dealt with this. All the Pharisees talked about God and yet rejected His only begotten Son. And at the same time, God's mercy, He had already set aside for Himself those that He would keep that would always be faithful to Him and that they would be the witness to those who reject. And they would continue to be the witness. And in the life of someone like Paul, he goes from being the one that was the rejecter to the witness to all the other rejectors. And he says here in verse 2, God has not cast his people away whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Now clearly, in this first section under, remember we know that God has not in any way forgotten Israel. He's not forgotten his covenant. He's not forgotten the seed of Abraham. He's not forgotten his people. And so as we look at this next section, reserved, this remnant that Paul will speak of, he says, or do you not know what the scripture says? This is something Jesus did all the time, didn't he? He would say, have you not read? Is it not written? It's a great way uh, when you and I encounter the questions that people have, whether they be from believers, whether they be from the unsaved world. Your opinion and my opinion will never help anybody's heart to be broken down or for them to understand things they don't understand. If someone doesn't understand the Scriptures, you explain it to them from the Scriptures. Now, you may have to explain other Scriptures, but this is why we're told to study the Word to know the Word so we can actually apply and use the Word. So when people have legitimate questions, and Paul doesn't say that when people ask him these things, like, well, why did Israel reject their own Messiah? Why would the Jewish people reject their Jewish Messiah? Was he, he didn't really rebuke. He says, I'll tell you why. Do you, do you not know what the Scriptures say? Have you not read? Or do you not know what the Scripture says? And many people don't. Isn't that really the problem that people either don't know what the Word says or they just don't believe it anyway. Now, whether they believe it or not is not relevant, at least from the standpoint of someday they will realize, wow, that really was the truth. 
I just rejected it. But if I talk to people, whether they believe in the Bible or not, I just tell them, well, let me tell you what the Scriptures say. Let me tell you what the Word of God says. And we'll go from there. Well, what does the Word of God say about Israel? He goes on to say, Elijah, he pleads with God, Lord, they've killed your prophets, I'm the only one left. He goes back to Elijah, and Elijah certainly was uh, very distressed at this time. He really did think, you know, his life was being threatened. Uh, He had just uh, defeated the prophets of Baal, and and he thinks that uh, uh, he himself is going to be killed now, and he's all alone. But the Lord had reserved 7,000 who would not bow the knee. Now, there's also a little bit of encouragement, not really the, the study tonight, but there's a little bit of encouragement for us, is that even in our own time, thank the Lord, there's more people that are standing with the Lord and with you than you think. It's still a small number relatively, even 7,000 wasn't a huge number relative to the total population, but it was a lot more than Elijah thought, right? So Elijah had in his mind, he was the last one, and he was wrong by a factor of 7,000, right? So he was way off the number, which gives me hope for our own nation that, uh, that across the country, I know there are many, many, many believers. And what really encourages me is if all of those believers, the Holy Spirit's power was poured out on them, we could actually see God do an amazing, amazing work in our nation in our time. But there was a remnant there, and the Scriptures are what tell us that Israel has not been forgotten by the Lord. Not many, as I mentioned, not many Jews in Paul's day embraced or followed Jesus. In most of the synagogues that Paul went into, uh, he wasn't really, after he spoke the first time, he wasn't really well received, was he? It wasn't like, hey, we can't wait to have you share again. Uh, it was escorting him out and you know, saying, uh, you can read, but don't be bringing that crucified you know, carpenter you, you believe in. We don't believe in that. We believe that a king is coming. When he comes, he's going to dethrone Rome, and we're going to have, you know, he's going to be big and, and great like David, but he's not going to be this suffering Messiah that you're speaking of. Never mind that they would have to ignore Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and things like that. And certainly Paul would speak to those things. But even though many didn't believe in uh, Jesus at that time, God used a small number of Israelites, of Jewish men. How many did Jesus pick there? Twelve, and he had these twelve disciples. He made them twelve apostles, and even had more than that. He had the 70 where he sent two by two. And Jesus took a small number that had believed in him, and look at the impact on the world that small number had. Now, God is never, whether it's the army of Gideon, right? Whether it goes back, like I mentioned, Noah, whether it is uh, little David turning the entire Philistines back, God's never needed big or 
huge numbers to accomplish, he's always used, or generally used, this small remnant. Now, the people that, um, the people that would be asking the question, if they were Jewish, and if they knew the Tanakh, the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, they should have known, they should have known themselves that a small number accepting and believing the testimony of the death and resurrection of Jesus, a small number in no way refuted its truth or veracity. In fact, it would look more like the very Old Testament small numbers that God always preserved. In other words, he's preserving a small group of apostles, disciples, preserving a small group that believed in Jesus. That's not unlike, it's actually very much like he had always done in the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples. And I'm going to read these because I think that as we kind of look at them together, it really kind of hits you what the Old Testament really testifies he gives one example, and he gives it of Elijah, right? He gives it of Elijah, and he also speaks of Isaiah as well. But look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 19. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. 2 Kings 19, 30 and 31, it says, And in the remnant who have escaped the house of Judah shall again take root downward, right? just like a tree. The roots will go downward and bear fruit upward, from out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do this. All right? Now that's future. That's partially taken place, but the full fulfillment of that is still yet to be fulfilled, where a small remnant God will replant in Jerusalem, and it'll, and it'll be fruitful, and the zeal of the Lord will perform it. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 6. Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return the remnant of you who have escaped. Once again, big group or small group? Small. The remnant have escaped. The remnant will be replanted in Jerusalem. Not the massive number, the remnant. Ezra 9, 8. And now for a little while, while grace has been shown from the Lord. There it is again. While what has been shown? Grace has been shown, Ezra 9, 8, while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in this holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Now that's a great passage even for our own, na- own nation, that he would give us a measure of revival, but it starts with this little remnant in uh, Ezra, Ezra 9, 8. Isaiah 1, nine. unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah 10.21, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. So Paul could have picked all through the whole Testament. There's others. Uh, let me read last, one last one, Micah 2.12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel... I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. But what does he say? I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. So Paul, he could have picked from all over the Old Testament and said, look, the fact that there's a handful of us that are now branching out from Jerusalem, right? Philip, Thomas, Paul, 
Barnabas, the fact that there's a few uh, that we've branched out and, and 3,000 were saved, of course, on Pentecost alone. So when Peter got up to stand up to pray, it wasn't like, uh, or, or to preach, it wasn't like nobody followed. I would love it to see 3,000 people saved in one day. How about you? So that's not insignificant. But still, compared to the population of all of Jerusalem or all of Israel, and then of all the Jewish world, and even, of course, all the Jews that are sp- spread out uh, throughout the nations, it was, a smaller, it was a much smaller number. But Paul would say, look, if you know the Scriptures, go back and study. What was it always? Remnant, 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 remnant. Always this small remnant. God preserved a remnant. The remnant is what God used to preserve the nation. God had reserved for Himself always a group. In the case of Elijah's time, 7,000 plus Elijah. 7,000 plus Elijah. God had reserved a small group. It goes on in verse 5, even so at this time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now Paul puts himself in that group. Any believer would have been part of the remnant, at least when this was written, part of that election of grace. You and I are part of the election of grace. Because again, still the road to destruction is broad and many there be who go that way. It wasn't that, uh, it wasn't that you and I are more special, that uh, God so loved us more, He so loved the world, and yet He foreknew who would receive Him, who wouldn't. He specifically uh, came to us and, and opened our eyes. There's no way I would have ever known that Jesus was the Messiah unless He convinced and showed me and opened up the eyes to my understanding. I still had to believe on His name, and so did you. But this remnant of grace, this election of grace that Paul speaks of, it's not of works, he goes on to say. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Many, uh, many Israelites, this, this in and of itself is a stumbling block to them. And it's not just to, not just to uh, Jewish people. A lot of people, I need to be able to do something. There's something I... You, hold on. You, you mean I have to admit I'm a sinner, ask Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, just tell Him, I now belong to you. Don't I got to go to Mecca? Don't I have to go do Passover in Jerusalem? Is there something else? I, there's got to be something else. Don't I have to go talk to a priest in a confessional box at least once a week? Maybe wrap these rosary beads around myself. There's got to be something. A lot of people want something to do. And God says, no, no, no. there's nothing you can do. You have to recognize that there is nothing you can do. Uh, the Israelite nation, obviously they had uh, the ceremonial things, they had the feast, right? They had all the dietary restrictions, they had all these things, and they thought that those things put them in right standing with God, right? Now, when people started hearing Jesus teach, and even before Jesus taught, when they started hearing John the Baptist teach, 
Because many, many repented under John the Baptist's ministry even before Jesus began to take the mantle from John the Baptist and continue to repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at his hand. Many people under the ministry of John the Baptist, but the majority of the people that believed in John the Baptist, according to Jesus, were not the hyper-religious like the Pharisees and the scribes, right? The people who were already doing a lot of stuff didn't think they needed Jesus. We're already doing really good stuff. And, it, and this is somewhat true even today if, if you're talking to people who ne- not necessarily are super religious, but do consider them super good for humanity. You meet people like this? You all work with them. I've worked with them. God loves them. God died for them. But really, because they help out with the United Way and Habitat for Humanity, and they've done stuff for the Red Cross, they run for the cure of cancer. I could go on and on. They're part of the Leukemia Society. They do uh, fundraisers. They help out with the PTA. They've got a long list of things they do. If anyone is ready for heaven, it's me. Because I'm not like people in prison, and I'm not like people that, matter of fact, I'm better than you Christians. Right? They really believe that all that good stuff, it's a form of religion even if they're not religious, isn't it? It's, it's some kind of word. It's some, it's, they've got their own kind of box of saying, if I can fill in these things, I must be as good as anybody else and maybe better than most people. And kind of that's how you know, God grades on a bell curve or something. That uh, those of you that are really, really, you're the high achievers, you've done a lot for the community. And this is, in many ways, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they thought that way. And on top of the fact that they thought they were good for the community, they really thought they kept the law. The rich young ruler comes along. Jesus said, have you kept? Yeah, I've kept them all, every, every commandment. And so when Jesus says, none of the, what you're doing, none of what you're doing will get you into heaven, they didn't like that. And many people don't like that. They want to be able to, and Paul says, if it's not of grace, if it's works, then it's no longer grace. It had to be, and some got it. It had to be that that was Jesus and Jesus alone. And thank the Lord for a man like Nicodemus. He realized he comes to Jesus in John chapter 3. He's, he's where we hear the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Because Nicodemus comes in the middle of the night and he says, I, I know you have to be from God. No one else could do these things. And Jesus tells him he must be what? Born again. Born again. You guys know I love to use the third chapter of John to witness to people because it's, it's such a foundational verse to ask people do you understand where the term born again came from? I always love to ask it because a lot of times people are like, yeah, you Christians came up with it. No, we did not. Jesus came up with it. The first to ever say it. He coined the phrase, you must be born again. He came from heaven with that message that you must be born again. Not that you must attend synagogue, not that you must 
You go to church X number of times, not that you must do all these things, although when you get saved, you will want to be with the body of Christ, but that's not what saves us. People will, that's the other sad thing. People that do do all those things will also sometimes miss the mark completely and not have been born again. It's all of grace. Putting our full trust in the finished work of the cross. This is the remnant of grace, and just like it, uh, just like the Lord has preserved us individually. Again, my my soul is kept by Christ, isn't it? Israel's identity as a nation is kept by who? Not by them, not by the Israeli Defense Force. I mean, Israel ceased to be a nation for quite some time, didn't it? And yet, miraculously, just like Ezekiel says, the dry bones coming to life, God put the flesh back on the bones, and Israel comes back to life as a nation. Now, there are many people in Christianity today, um, how many are familiar with the term replacement theology? So many, many, many Christians believe that Israel has been completely replaced by the church, the bride of Christ, that all of us are now spiritual Israel, and I, I don't know what they think Israel over there is, uh, but uh, uh, a figment of my imagination. No, I'm kidding. That, that's not, they, they do think Israel's really a nation. They just don't think the current Israel nation has hardly anything to do with any previous Israeli nation, that they're like two completely separate entities, if you will, uh, that this is the modern nation of Israel ha- has no kind of corresponding uh, that the, the, the true Israel today is simply the body of Christ, that Israel has been replaced by the church, and that Israel has no role. Uh, now, I don't have time to get into that, but that has a lot of problems when you study prophecy. Lots of problems. Uh, because it's not called the time of the church's trouble, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. Right? So there's a lot of things that are wrong with replacement theology. Um, but replacement theology, you know, bottom line, even from this 11th chapter, it doesn't square at all because it's contrary to what Paul is saying all the way back to verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. Uh, we look at this last, um, we'll get to the last section in one second, resisted. But replacement theology, this remnant of Israel as a nation, Israel as a nation has not been replaced. Look at verse 1. Paul says, For I am also a what? Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the three things that he says there, he cites first nationality. He's an Israelite. Second, he cites bloodline. That's Abraham. And third, to make sure that no one's confused, he cites his tribe. It's like me saying... Uh, I'm from the White family, born in Annapolis, Maryland, in the United States of America, making very clear that I was born a U.S. citizen, am a U.S. citizen, and nothing has changed. That's current identity. Paul didn't, even though Paul is part of the body of Christ, did he lose the fact that he's Jewish, Israeli, or an Israelite, not Israeli, that would be modern, but an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, no, all that, all that remained. Sam Nadler, when he's here, is still a brother in Christ, or he's absolutely a brother in Christ, but he's also still of the tribe 
or he's of the family of Abraham. I don't know what tribe Sam's from, but he's from the uh, family of Abraham, and he's Jewish. Now, Paul also said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day and all that good stuff. And so we understand that Paul identified with the nation state of Israel as well as he identified with the body of Christ. There is, now, and these two things are not uh, incompatible. I mean, so the, the replacement theologists think that the two of them can't coexist. They absolutely exist together, and they, they fit exactly the way the Bible has them together. Now, think about this. There's a remnant today, there's a remnant right now today, 2013, there's a remnant of the house and nation of Israel, correct? The nation state exists, and more people in Israel are Jewish than are not Jewish. I, can't, I just saw the, the new number the other day, and I've already forgotten that they just announced the census updates. But again, there's well over 7 million, I can't remember the total number, uh, of uh, Jewish people in Israel today. So there's the, the Jewish household of Israel has a nation state, but also bloodline. They literally are of the blood of Abraham. So a remnant exists of the nation of Israel. Now there's also, in the body of Christ, there's a remnant of Gentile believers. Now inside of Israel, there's the remnant of the house of Israel, but there's a remnant of believers inside the house of Israel. That makes sense? So in, in Israel today, when Sam goes and he speaks to the different Jewish churches, uh, uh, our Messianic churches that are in Israel, there's a remnant of believers that are not only Jewish, but they're also Christians. So they are a remnant of Israel, the saved Israel, just like Paul was in his time. And that still exists today. There's also a remnant of Gentiles. That would be all of us that are Gentiles. We're a remnant of of Gentiles in the world because the vast majority of Gentiles don't believe in Christ just like the vast majority of Jews don't believe in Christ. Make sense? Both are remnants. There's a Gentile remnant of Christians, us. There's a Jewish remnant of Christians. Some are in the United States. Some are actually in the nation state of Israel. Collectively, both remnants are one remnant called the bride of Christ. That makes sense? But they're not it's not incompatible that there really is a preservation, a full preservation of the nation state, of the tribes, of the Jewish state, and yet in that remnant is the saved remnant, which Paul was, which Peter was, which John was, and they, like us, are one in the, in the bride of Christ. And of course, when Jesus, when all the prophecies are fulfilled, and we live forever in heaven, all that comes together. Now we're going to get, and we still have the second half, we get, when we graft into the olive branch, that's you and I grafted in to the olive branch, where we become grafted in to the spiritual, and we actually are already grafted in to the spiritual seed of Abraham. Make sense? But yet, Israel, as a nation state, is by no means done. Even in the tribulation period, there will be 144,000 witnesses, and they'll come directly from the tribes, from the tribes of Israel. 144,000 directly from those tribes. Last point, we'll finish on the resisted. 
he goes on in verse 7, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Israel's not obtained in the sense that the vast majority of Israel rejected the Lord, but many Gentiles, they were more often receiving the witness of the apostles, the Gentiles where they went, like the Ethiopian eunuch was a good example of that. The Gentiles were more accepting, in many cases, this message of the gospel. He goes on in verse 8, For God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, to this day. And so even to this day, even that day, that's, uh, he's quoting from the Old Testament here quoting from Deuteronomy, and he goes on, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bow down their back always. They resisted the message. Paul would bring the message. The apostles would bring the message. This is what God has done. He sent his only begotten son. Everything that the prophets prophesied has been fulfilled in Jesus. He's the prophet like unto Moses. And of course, you remember when Stephen stands up and acts, that goes over really well. Stephen does his best to preach the entire message from the Old Testament, doesn't he? How is it received? They run at him, right? Gnashing their teeth, holding their ears. They can't take it anymore. Even though he was going systematically through the Old Testament, showing them Jesus, Jesus, all these things point to Christ, and all these things would, would be the fulfillment of why he came. Their eyes are darkened. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. This is, uh, certainly relates to our Exodus study as well. He says, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. We'll come back to that point right there in one second. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Spirit of the Lord are. Back to that point. It says, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It comes down to you have to believe the testimony of Jesus, and then everything opens up, and you're saying, why did I see that before? You have to believe in the testimony of Jesus, and then everything else comes alive. Things that you never could see before. You know, once you get saved, many of you that study the Bible now, uh, you're amazed at the things that you see. You're like, wow, I, I see things jumping out of the text, and I, I see Christ in the Old Testament. It's the two-way mirror. I've told people a lot of times before, um, you know, a two-way mirror, people looking on this side of the two-way mirror, it's just like a, like a mirror to them. They have... You know, detectives use it, and police, they have no idea. Detectives are all leaning up there, eating a donut, watching, listening to them, uh, you know, give their 
They don't see what anyone's doing behind the two-way mirror. And I, I told unsaved people before, I said, look, I've been on your side of the two-way mirror, and I'm now on the other side of the two-way mirror. I know what you're looking at, and you just see the reflection of yourself. You can't see beyond. But on the other side of the two-way mirror, you can see everything happening. I'm, I'm not stopped at the mirror. I can see past it because God, but I have to believe at some point, by faith, you are saved by grace through faith. You have to believe the witness of Jesus. Jesus said, do you believe? Numerous times in his ministry, only believe. But people would not believe. Peter says in 1 Peter 6, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, that'll be my last scripture tonight. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> he says, therefore, this really explains the whole thing in a nutshell. Peter says, therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And what does Peter say? And he who believes on him will not be put to shame. You have to believe. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, which they were also appointed. Now, Paul also uses that same text. The stone, he uses the same stumbling block back in uh, chapter 9 that Peter uses. But Peter says right there, he who believes, to you who believe, you have to believe in the testimony of Jesus. There's all the evidence in the world. Um, I, 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 I just saw a clip of uh, uh, Calvary Fort Lauderdale got behind a movie. Um, it's a true story. Uh, you guys know uh, the, the show, um, what's that show Ray Romano was in? Uh, what's that? Yeah, everybody loves Raymond. His brother is, is a born-again Christian today, and he basically used to be, he used to be a detective, uh, New York City cop or detective, and, and he decided to investigate all the claims that Jesus existed and actually took a, a classroom of students, all of them not sure one way or the other, they didn't believe, and, and collectively they went and did the investigative work, just like didn't say... He, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Maybe he existed, maybe he didn't. Maybe he really was a son of God, maybe he was And they did all the investigative work. I haven't seen the movie, but I, I, I would encourage. It's coming out in the theaters, I want to say, like September 18th or something like that. But in essence, the whole movie is about true story. They come to realize that the evidence is overwhelming, that every single, every single thing you've ever heard true about Jesus is true. When they truly took the time to investigate it, and yet people will believe almost anything that Entertainment Tonight says or the Wall Street Journal says, right? Or anything, People Magazine, I saw a picture of so-and-so must be dating, you know, whatever it is. Not important stuff either. But when it comes to Jesus, Jesus said, will you believe my testimony? People say, I won't believe it. won't believe it. I'll never forget. I'll close on... Um, uh, I remember I was living in Charlotte, and there was a guy, a lawyer, true story too, he was uh, arguing against everything about Jesus with another 
with another believer who was trying to win him to Christ. And, and finally, the guy said to him, he said, let me ask you a question. If I could show you beyond a shadow of a doubt every single thing, disprove every doubt you have about Jesus, would you believe in him? He said, no. And deep down, God knows that's always the fact. That's kind of hard for us. To, we can't see with the eyes of God. We, can't, we, we, think that, we think that they didn't get enough evidence. And that's not what the Scriptures say. They stumble in darkness, not because God hasn't given any light. He's given light to every man, according to the book of John, chapter 1. But what that lawyer admitted to, I'm not picking on lawyers, he really was an attorney. He said, no, even if you showed me every single bit of evidence, I still would not believe. I don't know what it is that people find so offensive about Jesus, but yet Paul says they're offended. Peter says they will not believe, but to those who believe he's precious and everything else opens up. The veil comes off. And Paul was the same way. And literally, Paul was an example of Israel. Remember, scales fell off his eyes. He was a type uh, of exactly what the nation, when the scales fall off, he's like, how did I get, this is what Paul was thinking, how did I get it so wrong? I was there to kill Christians. I couldn't have been more wrong. And Paul had studied it all and thought he had it all figured out, but he would not believe the simple testimony of fishermen like Peter, would he? And that's the key that's why we must pray for Israel. But the, the good news is, and we'll look at the last part of 11, God has preserved a remnant. There's the Sam Nadlers. There's the Dr. Michael Hertz today, Mitch Glassers, in our lifetime, even in our own church. And yet, God will then take that remnant, and ultimately, we will have uh, many, many believe on the name of Jesus Christ because of that remnant.